Hi, this is Jamie Shanks, author of Social Selling Mastery, Scaling Up Your Sales and Marketing Machine for the Digital Buyer. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in modern marketing. And don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything discussed in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if you're listening to the show right now and you're not driving or operating dangerous machinery or skiing downhill, please hop on Twitter and tell us where in the world you're listening from. My Twitter handle is marketingbook. Today, we're joined by Jamie Shanks, and we're going to talk about his book, Social Selling Mastery, Scaling Up Your Sales and Marketing Machine for the Digital Buyer. Jamie Shanks is one of the world's leading social selling experts. He has personally built social selling programs for nearly every industry, ranging from startups to Fortune 500 corporations. And before starting his company, which is called Sales for Life, a social selling training and coaching company. Jamie was the director of sales at two software as a service companies, building their businesses from infancy to profitability. And interesting fact, he has visited every continent except Africa. Jamie, congratulations on social selling mastery and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much for the invite, Doug. So I learned about your book from a listener of the Marketing Book Podcast, Jill Rowley. And she's been a big supporter of the podcast, almost like a guardian angel, because she's she'll find out about these great books and she'll send them my way. So Jill, thank you very much. And Jamie, I met you at the Inbound Conference. I was walking across the floor and I thought, man, that's Jamie Shanks. <laughs> and I walked up and said, hey, are you Jamie Shanks? And so uh, it was great. And then one of my colleagues, Pete Humes, got to uh, see, he, he saw you speak at the Inbound Conference. And that was, that was a great experience. Well, fantastic. And was I wearing one of my goofy blazers or I, I can't recall? <laughs> I don't know. I'll have to ask. I think when I was speaking to you, just I don't recall your blazer getting my attention, but I had probably had a beer by then. So I know. <laughs> but I remember when I met you, you told me the story about how you wrote the book while you were recovering from what sounded like rather serious uh, knee surgery. It sounded like your wife said, something like, you've got to get this book finished. It almost sounded like she took you from the operating room straight up to your cabin, north of where you live, and said, here, you're not, I'm not coming to pick you up until you finish it. And what's amazing to me is that on Facebook last week, I saw that you were out skiing. Well, yeah, that's exactly it. So, I was, Are you crazy? Well, I was a competitive mogul skier, and I got hit in a mogul course by a rogue skier and tore my ACL, MCL, and 25% of the meniscus was removed from my right knee. And my surgery was February 4th, 2016, one year ago. And my wife took me full of narcos from the surgery. But they were prescribed by a health professional. They were. They were a lot of... Uh, Very important distinction for the listener. <laughs> a lot of Percocets drove me up to our cottage, which is an hour north of Toronto. And it's a, you know, it's a winter wonderland. Dropped me off the couch. There was uh, a week's worth of groceries and a case of beer. And I was Jack Nicholson in The Shining. I sat on that couch for nine days and I wrote this book on the couch. I got the impression you don't recommend that approach for, for most authors, though. I, I don't recommend the Percocets. Those were awful. <laughs> and they don't go very well with Heineken. Yeah. 
<laughs> Maybe it's a good thing that you don't really like the pain pills because some folks can get kind of carried away with those. But of course, I read the book and I did not get a sense that you were, you know, hallucinating while writing it. Well, so. Wiley has great editors. So that's <laughs> <laughs> very good. They do. They do. I see a book from Wiley. I know it's going to be good. Now, I've just got to be honest with you. I really liked the book. And as a matter of fact, I've already stolen some ideas from it. Yesterday, we did a content marketing workshop with a a new client, which is where we get them together to try to help them understand how all this works and get some buy-in and start the process. And we doggone it. We already we revised some things we were doing based on what you described in your book. And where we live in Virginia, Norfolk, Virginia Beach area, we've started a monthly sales and marketing book club. Meets every month at this beautiful library that's been restored downtown. And your book is going to be featured on April 14th. That's how, that's how much. This is a great book about sales and marketing alignment. And so... If I hit you up for another signed copy, it may be, it'll be a door prize. So, Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you. Let's start with an excerpt from the book and then get into the questions. And I've got lots of them and I got more than we have time for me to ask. But I wanted to quote from the very last page of the book, actually. I wanted to write this book because I see too many companies around the world stuck in the proverbial mud. They are running the same sales playbook they've been using since the 1990s. And frankly, they are losing the mind share of their buyers. Unfortunately, their big brand vanity blinds them from looking at their sales process objectively. So, Jamie, what is social selling and what evidence do you have that it's not some fad? Well, social selling, the easiest way to describe it, and in that book, I have a Venn diagram. And on that Venn diagram are three unique types of selling that you have all been doing. Any sales professional has been doing long before the term social selling. And those that Venn diagram three pillars are trigger-based selling, referral-based selling, and insights-based selling. And so if I'm a sales professional, the reality is I cannot stop my buyer from learning. They're going to learn with or without me. So that, that is a fact. So the buyer, uh, it's now like caveat vendetur, let the seller beware that the buyer can learn. And so I'm just trying to meet them halfway using these digital communications tools to arm that buyer with information to make an informed decision. And I could do it with these three pillars. These three pillars, I'll give you the example. So trigger-based selling. An example of that that's very common is the job change alert. So you're you're able to mechanize uh, taking your existing customer base and watching them migrate to new companies that are not your customers based on your advocates that are going from company A to company B. Well, now that can be mechanized through tools like LinkedIn. Another one is insights-based selling. So uh, there's a great trainer named Jeff Hoffman who owns a company called Basho that 20 years ago talked about the concept, why you, why you now? You clip an article out of a newspaper, you call the CEO and you say, you said this in Times Magazine. Because you said this, this is one of the reasons we should speak, you know, the, the concept of why you are now. Well, now with digital content, I can take an infographic, a video, a blog post, a podcast, and share it with a customer to say, three weeks ago, you and I were talking about X, Y, and Z, and this debunks the myth of the objection you gave me. Here's a fact, a factoid, if you were, that can help you along that journey. So that's, you know, I won't continue diving through, but that is 
in essence, what social selling is, it's taking the same process you've already been using, but mechanizing it with the digital technology that's free and available to you. And to the second part of your question, the question was, you know, help me understand uh, the, the facts behind this. IDC, McKinsey, a whole bunch of other, the Forrester specifically, Forrester's done a fantastic job of doing social selling and digital selling analysis. But the fact is that if I took two sale, two groups of sales teams, uh, it's team A was going to adjust the way they sold the social sellers and team B was going to continue selling the same way they had last year. The social sellers would outperform the non-social sellers by 20% within one year. And so what that means is that's the difference between the average sales team, six of 10 sales professionals making quota, to now eight of 10 sales professionals making quota. And I don't know about most companies, but I would love an extra 20% in my business. And that's basically, it's just another tool in the tool chest. I hope that helped describe what social selling is. Yeah, a couple of thoughts come to mind. One is in the book, you say, look, this is additive. We're not saying get rid of your current operation, right? Oh, 100%. I I use the phone every single day. I use email every single day. Uh, The only difference is I now have a new enriched database. I now have a new enriched communication tool, which are all these social platforms. That's all that it is. And, And the effect of social sellers are able to distill their activities, their digital activities into a cadence that's 30 minutes a day. Uh, and Jill, you talked about Jill Rowley, uses a, a, a phrase she loves every deal, every day. Yeah, explain and that. And what that really means is if I'm, okay, let's say, because a, a lot of sales professionals who sell at larger organizations are account-based focused. So what Jill's basically saying is you have a set of named accounts, whether those named accounts are geographically focused, uh, industry focused, or they've been assigned to you because there's a, a bucket, a list of 20 companies. What she's saying is that every deal, every one of those 20 companies, you wake up in the morning and you think, how can I apply elements of social to help move the buyer along their journey? Think of it like a game of football. I'm trying to get first downs. I'm trying to move the ball five to 10 yards at a time. But then every day, Remember, not every sales professional is account-based focused. So it's also thinking about the broader reach of your territory or the industry you serve or the community that you're trying to build. Every day, I am also educating that community and, and building a following and influencing those in the market. So that's what that every deal every day means. Now, for the listener's benefit, this is an audio only show. So let's talk about nudity. What do you mean when you say never send a naked message? <laughs> what it means is, and I get them, you know, I'm a CEO of a company of 20. I can't imagine what it's like to be a CEO of a company of 2000. But I get on average five to 10 crappy emails a day soliciting my, you know, soliciting our money to, for their services. And you know what, Jamie? Every one of those is a prospect for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what, it, what it means to don't send a naked message is don't send a message that isn't embedded with value. And inside a message needs to include a video, an infographic, an article. I, I, Jill and I, I'll tell you a quick story. Jill and I were in 
uh, where were we? We were in Shanghai, China, speaking at General Electric. And when we were there, the chief marketing officer of one of the divisions was out to, to dinner with us. And Jill had asked her, tell me a story of a sales professional that has wowed you, that has actually applied social selling. And she told the story, and if I, I might get the company wrong, but I believe she said the sales professional lived in Singapore and was at Hewlett Packard Enterprise. And this sales professional would start conversations, and it wasn't about Hewlett Packard. He would help this CMO understand all the great marketing events that are taking place in the Asia Pacific region and was inviting her to events and was sharing her best practices. And that's, he was constantly leading with value. And what she said is that one day when I need a solution, I need to buy something one day, Hewlett Packard will definitely be the number one company I call because this person is constantly helping me along my journey. So what it means to never send a naked message is think of what the customer wants first and would love to learn about, read about, have discussions about, and your message needs to include that value. Of course, we're sales professionals. There needs to be an ask, but there also needs to be a give. Yeah, you mentioned a Forrester study that talked about 74% of buyers are choosing the sales professional and company that was first to add value and insight in their buying journey. So it's really, it's like a swarming offense where they're just, they're leading with value. Absolutely. And to me, I, I say this on stage, it is the most profound and important statistic that has shaped social selling that, is, that has come out thus far, I believe. Mary Shea at Forrester is leading the charge of social selling and it, that digital transformation. And they're constantly doing evaluation on sales teams. And and what that study means, that 74%, it means I want you to picture the movie Inception with Leonardo DiCaprio. It's the concept of planting a seed and letting it germinate in somebody's mind. What it's basically saying is that you as a sales professional, if you can teach somebody something new, plant a seed, let it germinate, let it build, the probability that whether it's three months from now or two years from now, when that buyer needs a solution, they're going to think back of that what originally created first that why in their mind and then the how and where did they get all that information? And then they're going to turn back to the source. And it's important to note that people buy from people. And so what, what Forrester is saying is that 74% of deals are awarded to you, the sales professional, because you were the one that planted that seed. You are the one that watered the flower and germinated it. So, if, and that's what content can do so, so well is to behind the scenes nurture buyers so that you're not just calling them once a week and saying, so you're ready to buy yet? You've just, you've now got value to offer during that, what we call the dead zone, that period of time where the buyer goes dark and you need to nurture them along that journey. You talked about this, I guess, the sort of the A-B test that was done that showed if you didn't do social selling versus what you did. And I can just envision, you know, the CEO sitting there with his arms crossed thing, what's the risk of doing this? And, and to him, I would say, what's the risk of not doing it? <laughs> that seems like the big downside here. Well, and I, and I, I don't want to misquote, but I remember, I don't know if it was Jill that told me that story. If it was the CEO, I thought it was the CEO of Cisco once said it on stage that, I would rather, you know, I don't even want to misquote it, but it was the concept that it's worse to have people do nothing internally than to, to try and evolve. 
And to that study of that A-B test, I still remember the company. It was called In Contact out of Utah. And the, the organization had trained only half of their sales staff as social sellers and left the other half. The social sellers at that company, one year later at their sales kickoff, had created 157% more pipeline than the non-social sellers. And in fact, at that sales kickoff, the 2016 sales kickoff, nine of 10 of their largest deals were socially driven. So, I mean, it convinced them. Yeah, well, you know, you can lead a horse to water, can't always make him drink. You describe social selling as setting landmines for your competition. Please explain that. Uh, that, Okay. I love to do this. What if I'm on stage, I ask sales professionals, if you were in an RFP situation, request for proposal situation, and the buyer had asked three participants to come in, would you want to be the first to present, the second to present, or the third present? And it's always amazed me. So many love to be last in that scenario. And I said, absolutely not. I always want to be first. And it comes back to Mary Shea and Forrester's analysis that 74% of deals are awarded to those that are first to provide value. And so what it means by setting landmines is let's, let's use my business as that analogy. We're teaching and tailoring and, and helping buyers understand the best practices, the pitfalls, and the challenges of social selling. And examples of that, we're teaching them how to develop pilot programs, how to measure social selling, what are communication cadence best practices, uh, what are coaching plays they should look for. So I want you to picture that now I'm in an R, my company is in an RFP against two other social selling training organizations. Well, if that customer has been consuming our insights uh, and learning how we shape pilots, how we measure programs, and now all of a sudden when they interview the other two companies, it's it's more like, a you know, they're just getting peppered with questions because the buyer is armed with so much information. They say, well, from our understanding, we're going to we want to do a pilot with these groups of people. We want to measure it this way. We want to like you have already set them up to understand exactly what they want. So seller two and three are at such a disadvantage because the buyer has already in their mind shaped what best practices would look like. Yeah, they're having to hit the ball back over the net. You've established the baseline and the trust for where these folks want to go. Another expression I've heard is that you're sort of poisoning the well for your competition. Absolutely. So the problem that content faces with sales organizations is sales organizations can't see the direct correlation between I share X and it does Y for my customer. It's it hasn't the empirical evidence, while it can be proven, is just it's obviously not common knowledge yet. But if sales professionals really understood that what that content is doing is making the velocity of your deals so much greasier, so that, like so much easier, they would do it more. Yeah, I guess they gotta do it a few times and see how it works. It's, I guess it's sort of like telling somebody to change their golf swing. It's just, it's very different. I was just going to add one point. The way that you know that it works long term. So, you know, we've been doing this for four years. Our sales team always has a a laugh at this. So uh, we'll have a new inbound lead. We'll do a discovery call. And in that discovery call, the buyer is using language and ideas that maybe they don't even realize were actually created by us. Yes. They're telling (laughs) it back to 
our sales team and they're laughing. They said, you realize it's like listening to Jamie talk back to me on a phone call. Right. Yeah, you can tell. And that's that's great. I've experienced that myself. And it's sort of like, wow, this <laughs> This is actually working. So lots of marketers listen to this podcast. And of course, I love having sales books because I think that, well, it's it's pretty clear that marketers who don't really understand sales, and this is even more so now than five, 10 years ago, they're not going to be effective marketers. And this book was very, very much about sales and marketing alignment. And you say in the book, social selling is is simply a byproduct of effective sales and marketing alignment at scale across your organization and that over 50% of the success of a social selling ecosystem within your company is going to start and end with marketing. So how is that? Why is that? Most marketers, uh, we walk into a customer and the marketing team still thinks in clicks and likes and views and impressions. And there is a massive disconnect between the way that they value themselves and the way they measure themselves versus a sales team. The sales team is measured in such black and white numbers. Did I make quota or did I not make quota, right? Right. With marketing, there's a lot of things that happen. It's like, you know, I'm picturing like the Wizard of Oz, like machines are moving everywhere, but it's not necessarily moving the needle. And one of the biggest challenges is, and this is what we do at the beginning of our program, We actually have marketers interview the sales leaders and determine what percentage of sales quota attainment did you, the VP of sales, when you wrote your business plan, did you think your sales team was going to have from inbound marketing, from the demand gen waterfall? What percentage of that quota did you think was going to be marketing driven? And it's amazing to hear, you know, and I've been in those rooms and some sales teams have said like 1%. 10%. I've seen teams that have also said 75%, but they're being delivered 1%. And so what naturally happens is it's an awakening that marketing's resources and production capacity currently has a huge delta versus what sales needs to deliver in the market. And that awakening starts everybody looking together at each other and saying, well, hold on a second. We're on team revenue here. Like, forget our titles and roles. We're all here to generate revenue for the organization. So maybe if we actually came together, we could come up with ideas to bridge the gap between what you marketing are doing and what we sales are delivering. And what naturally comes out of that is digitization. Marketers know the importance of digitization. Sales doesn't necessarily. And what naturally comes together as they work well is that digitizing this sales process makes sense. And that's where social selling starts to, to germinate. There was a few other questions on that page where you said, you know, go in, Mr. Marketer, Mrs. Marketer, interview your salespeople. And they were, they were great questions. And also, if a marketer went in and asked those questions of the salespeople, they would look at the marketers. It just seems like just asking those questions would change their perception of what marketers do. It would further remove them from this widespread misperception or perception, accurate perception, that a lot of marketers are arts and crafts party planners in the make it pretty department. A hundred percent. And the future of market, I, I am seeing, here's the, and this is a wake up call for marketing. If anybody that's listening to this podcast, uh, we have 300 global customers around the world. I have never seen, just in the last 12 months, the amount of 
displacement that is happening in the marketing departments. I'll use the, a harsher word, fire, firing. The number of marketers, directors of digital content marketing, CMOs, the entire content marketing departments are being fired. Why? Because companies are awakening to the fact that the pretty department, the qualitative analysis is no longer going to cut it anymore. And that marketing needs to deliver a quota no different than sales is. Now, how they're measured, some will measure them on the, the service level agreement connection at the you know, sales qualified lead or sales accepted lead. We're getting, for us, I mean, we're a sophisticated marketing department. Our marketing team is actually measured on sales bookings. There is a percentage of our annual sales bookings that must be delivered from marketing as a percentage of sales quota. That's great. And I would say to those companies that aren't quite there, even if you have a, a service level agreement, that's a great start. I mean, if you can't do it like Jamie's firm, just at least start start talking about the R word, revenue. Yeah. <laughs> and there's one other quote from there that you said, you'll recognize greater sales and marketing alignment when your marketing team is no longer focusing on website traffic or lead volumes as their ultimate key metric. Yeah. When they show up to a meeting... And they realize that no one cares, no one cares that the web traffic has spiked 23%. And all of a sudden they came to the meeting and said, sales, I have just delivered you eight new sales qualified leads. That language change changes the salespeople's value perception of, oh man, I, I need these people as my partners. They're starting to become joined at the hip. And you know, a lot of companies, from what I see, there's a gravitational pull that's forcing marketing and sales to work closer together. And the ones that embrace that, and like you've described, are going to be better off in the short term and the long term. Jamie, let's talk about the elephant in the room. What is the number one reason why companies fail at social selling? Executive leadership and buy-in, hands down. And in fact, so we we had to revamp our digital sales management program because we recognized that where the failures, companies that were dropping the ball, it actually had to do, I mean, the, the VP of sales and the, the, the VP of marketing are critical, of course, from a communications and an accountability standpoint, but the big failure was at the frontline sales manager. So the frontline sales manager is has their sales team learning and educating and becoming social sellers. But then the frontline sales manager isn't creating a method of coaching and accountability. So when that frontline sales manager has the salesperson in their one-on-ones, they're not asking them about specific digital activities. They're not measuring them against those activities. They're not encouraging them, whether it's with the carrot or the stick, to have them keep doing those digital activities. So the frontline sales managers, they unfortunately, were doing the same thing they'd always done since the 1990s, even though the sales professionals were changing. And that is not a sustainable model. So the biggest failure is the frontline sales managers. So the listener can maybe place themselves in kind of where they are in the social selling world, where they work. Can you walk us through some of the different levels of social selling that you see, which is, you know, like from zero being status quo, nothing, and the others being more like your company. Sort of the, the different stages companies seem to pass through as they get better at this. Yeah. So at zero, you'll look around the room and there is 
absolutely no connection between sales and marketing. And in fact, sales and marketing don't sit on the same floor or city or country. And that then right away, you're at, you're at level zero. Level one, random acts of social. Random acts of social is sales rep A is crushing it. And he or she would go to the water cooler and has all these stories about becoming social. Yet the other three people that sit in the cubicles next to that person don't have a single clue what they're doing from a social standpoint. So it has not been centralized. Right. There's no chance of it scaling. No, it's not scaling. Now, level two is the beginning idea around centralization or scale and where enablement or somebody in the team has taken an initiative to begin one-on-one programs. Let's get started with LinkedIn. Let's get started with Twitter. Let's use LinkedIn Navigator. I mean, the and typically that education process is starts around the is tool centric rather than mindset and skill set focused. Yeah, which I liken to somebody who joins a health club after the new year thinking that that's going to help them get in shape and lose weight where they, they actually have to show up and do and it. And it's like, no, as well, you join the health club and then the clinics are, you spend every waking minute on the bench press clinic and you, you didn't learn all the other components but at least your chest is going to be strong <laughs> so, okay. so, so now you get to now you get to the next level uh, which is kind of around a mastery program so you've recognized okay that that wasn't very sustainable now we need to bring in the right people so you're bringing marketing enablement and sales you're you're starting to create a curriculum an official certification that all new hires would use, all your existing teammates would use. It's a true centralization. And, and the purpose of this is that it is meant to change the mindset and dive deep into the skill set and reinforce that skill set. The next level, level four and five, is where the byproduct of that starts to bring the company together around first alignment and then integration of sales and marketing. And what's the difference between sales and marketing alignment and integration? Yeah, so an alignment would be that you've you've understood the concept of the service level agreement that marketing and sales, while they still work in silos, there's a lot of meetings that happen between the two. They've built together the buyer's journey together. They've built content roadmaps. They've built content libraries together. They are really truly truly starting to work together, but integration is where and I believe it's the future. This is what we've done internally. Internally, in our business, when we hire somebody, we're hiring them based on traditional roles, right? You're a salesperson, you're a marketer. But the second you walk in that door, you are all part of team revenue. Your titles are washed away. Sales and marketers, in our, in a word, a smaller business, but we all sit together and we all talk together. We all talk about the buyer's journey and we all have a complete understanding of top of the funnel, the bottom of the funnel. No one person is more valuable in the process than the other. And that integration is that the marketers think like salespeople and the salespeople think like marketers. There really is no different, except that each person has their role to play within that factory. One of my favorite topics, and I think it's the holy grail yeah, it, <laughs> for going forward. Yeah. And, and the large organizations have more difficulty with it because, you know, they're they're so traditional that yeah. their marketing team sits in Portland and their sales team sits in San Francisco. I mean, that just... Yeah, a very hidebound inertia, very powerful force. Recipe for disaster. 
Back to content, you recommend, surprisingly, dropping the word content from your vocabulary. Why, why is that? Uh, because content just seems like a, a thing, a widget. It's like content is ubiquitous like with PDF, right? And I've always liked the way that corporate visions looked at it and they called it insights because that's what it is. Think, and if the more that you, if, when you call something content, you think of it as a commoditized widget. When you call something an insight, you think of it as intellectual property. And if you think of it as intellectual property, if you truly think that the videos you're making, the infographics uh, that you're making are so valuable that if you, if somebody were to poach those and place them on their own website, you, you would want to almost like press charges or sue them or whatever it is because they've stolen from you. It is actual intellectual property. Then you know you've created something great. And that, that your insights are truly helping people, uh, whereas content is just a PDF that you'd fire it everywhere, and you really don't care where it goes. Yeah. After reading that, I, I could understand how organizations think of content as somebody shoveling coal into the blast yeah, furnace. Yeah, just, just things. Yeah, you just things you're firing into the... Exactly. Also, you mentioned that when it comes to creating content, explain the concept of creating a never-ending story and why that's important. Yeah. So what most marketers and sales professionals might not recognize is that content when consumed is consumed in a silo. The, the buyer's silo. From the buyer's silo. So the buyer doesn't read one asset and it, it's not the yellow brick road. Like they're not logically read one blog, then download the ebook that is attached to it. Then that ebook is moves to the webinar and then to your solutions page. And then they call you on your contact us page. And they, they don't say, oh, this seems to be some bottom of the funnel content. Let me back up. Exactly. It just, it's just, it's not that linear, right? So the reason the never ending story is that every piece of insight or content, however you want to view it, is going to be viewed most likely in a silo. They consumed it because it was emailed to them or they saw it on LinkedIn or Twitter. They read it. And then they might come back to something later, but ultimately every insight that is created needs to logically lead somebody further down a path. So a blog is leading to a, to an ebook. That ebook leads to upcoming webinars. Those webinars lead to solutions pages. Those solutions pages have ROI calculators. And because if they do consume something in a silo, it there is a next step for them. And basically, the never-ending story loop is you're trying to move them from the why to the how to the who. But if they keep coming back to the how, then the content, that's fine. The content will loop them back into further and further how information to which then, you know, you're hoping that it breaks them towards the who uh, after consuming enough of it. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that I think it was Serious Decisions study they did said 65% of your marketing team's digital content never makes its way to the customer's hands. And related to that is what you just touched on, the the why and the how and the who. And full disclosure, that was one of the things we used in our workshop yesterday. We used to always say awareness, consideration, decision. I Same with us. But I, we, I, I had never seen that until I read your book, and it's like, stealing it. And yeah, it, we, re we reframed that for a reason, because awareness, consideration, decision was created by HubSpot, and it's a marketing, it, it makes sense to marketers. Yes. But a sales professional doesn't think like that. And the, this is, again, part of that sales and marketing alignment. When you, create, uh, when you create content ideas, when you create a content library, 
it can't be built just by the marketing team in a silo because salespeople don't think like that. And so that, uh, that we redesigned it to be, okay, think like a buyer and think like a salesperson would ask themselves. The buyer would say, why should I change? And then they would say, how do I change? And then they would say, okay, who's going to help me change? That's, and then content needs to be arranged in that logical order. Yes. And I focus group of one here, but when we used it yesterday, they got it right away. In the past, it required a little more explanation using awareness consideration decisions. So thanks for sharing that in your book. <laughs> that was very, very helpful. And you know who got most excited about it? The salespeople in the room. Exactly. That tingling means it's working, Jamie. Okay, one other question I just had to ask, and you talk about as it relates to truly understanding your buyer. You mentioned that it's typically the most underutilized but powerful way to meet sales quotas. Can you say a little bit more about that? One of the most profound changes that happen in that sales and marketing alignment is doing an analysis of what we call the content consumption story. The content consumption story is really simple to put together if sales and marketing come together to do it. What it is, is let's picture a buyer and that sales professional has natural sales touch points, right? They, they had a first call, they book a meeting, then they have a discovery call. Then there's a discovery call number two, where they bring more people to the call. Then there's a proposal, then there's contract negotiations, and then there's the closing of the deal. Like let's, let's just say that that's easy. Let's go with that map. Yeah, let's go with that map. Well, in between all of those sales touch points, the buyer has digital fingerprints all over your digital assets, your website, your blogs, your all of your insights. And so what now marketing does is they start plotting the dates, the assets that are happening before the calls, during the calls, after the calls. The content consumption story is taking sales data and marketing data and placing them on the same linear map. And what it shows over that period of time is that the buyer is consuming in between sales touches. And this is the awakening, the, a massive awakening for salespeople is, oh my Lord, I had no idea. <laughs> but two days before the call and two days after the call, the buyer was on our website, touching these landing pages, consuming insights. I didn't know about this. And I'll tell you the stat studies from our business. In our business, as of right now, 43% of all content a buyer is going to consume before they buy from us happens before my inside sales team calls the person for the very first time. And the average buyer will consume 7.4 insights before they buy from us. So the transformation is by a marketing team plotting your last 10 customers, as an example, and then taking that data to sales. It helps prescriptively change the course of your business two ways. One, it helps the marketing team teach the sales team how valuable content is and as well, which assets they should use based on historical patterns from the, the buyer. And number two, it changes the marketing team's production kind of machinery. And what it does is it has them only start creating assets that with a purpose that produce. Because they now have the empirical evidence to see that, as you said, 65% of content doesn't see the light of day. And it's because it wasn't very valuable. So let the buyers tell you back what they want to consume and what they want to read. When we did this, we started doing this in our own business about 18 months ago. And what it changed for us is that our buyers were consuming infographics at a feverish rate compared to video, which surprised us. 
And so we changed our resources to develop more infographics per month than video content. And as the world changes, we will change with it. But now that created more marketing qualified leads, sales accepted leads, thus turning into sales qualified leads and customers just with those shapings. It's a great story about the concept of do more of what's working and less of what's not working. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why you follow all all the analytics. So, uh, Jamie, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? To get started today, not tomorrow. I, I see so many companies dipping toes into this. And that's great. I think that's a great first step. But I Fear for for companies. If, listen, if if you're one of the world's largest companies, yeah, you, you're you're going to survive whether digi, digi, through digitization or not. But if you're a small to medium business specifically, and you're in a competitive market, this is the difference between uh, this is your opportunity cost of changing yourself and changing your market share or not. Just get started. Yeah, it just reminds me of perfect is the enemy of progress. The secret of getting ahead is getting started. But to those bigger companies, I would also say the number of years that companies are on the whatever you want to use, S&P 500, is shrinking. Oh, and and some some of these large you know, legacy technology companies, we service a lot of the technology companies and telecom companies, are getting smashed in the market. And they wish they had it changed years ago, but you know they're they're changing. Some are changing now. This is the opportunity in the next few years to change. Yeah, today my colleague Pete, <laughs> I heard him say the this expression of the best time to plant a tree is ten years ago. Yeah, exactly. The second best time to plant it is now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> what books have inspired your work and career? Well, the book that started all of this for me was The Challenger Sale. Oh, it, yes. Yeah, it, it changed my life. I, I'm an Audible's listener. Ironically, mine's not on Audible's. <laughs> you actually yeah. own the book. I heard, I re- still remember, I was on the highway listening to The Challenger Sale, and I pulled over and I started taking notes. Like, I mean, I was sitting on the side of the highway taking notes. It's that good. I mean, we've got a copy of it right here. Uh, you know, there's other books like Mark Robert's Sales Acceleration Formula. Yes. Again, it it aligned to a lot of our thinking. I mean, there's so I and I think have you had Anthony Anarino on your podcast? I have been blessed with some of the greatest <laughs> sales. I've had Mark Robert, Anthony yeah. Anarino, Mike Weinberg, Jeb Blunt, Mark Hunter. I mean, it's just this is what excites me. <laughs> yeah, all, so, all those guys are all those guys are just like a fountain of knowledge. And that's what actually has changed for me. I Last year, I read 30, 30 books. This year, I'm trying to go for 50. Now, I'm an, again, I mentioned I'm an Audible's person. I have a long commute into the office there. I'm back every day. I'm on 60 or 70 flights a year. So I can consume a book a week. Wow. And it it has changed. I mean, I feel sometimes like an encyclopedia of sales knowledge because I, you know, I could recite every quote and and statistic you can imagine because you know I'm reading and consuming that much. You read a lot of books, Jamie. Please tell me you're not going to start a podcast that interviews authors. Oh no, I, uh, I well I I don't whatever my marketing team tells us we're going to do next we're going to do next. Well, but, I'll, I'll uh, talk them out of that. No, no, no it's <laughs> just it, I, I, the problem is Jamie. I would probably have to add that to my list because I love listening to to podcasts like that. Are there any uh, recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? 
I'm trying to think of the, I, I was about to listen to, I have not listened to Mark Hunter's High Profit Prospecting. High Profit Prospecting. Yeah. So it's in my Audible's queue and it's up next. So I'm Okay. Highly recommended. Now, if you're deciding whether to read it or not, you can listen to my interview with him. It was, you know, he was like a radio guy in college. <laughs> Very funny guy. And he makes fun of me being Canadian every time we get together. Oh, yeah. No, it's like a Canada versus U.S. banter every time yeah. we get together. And that's, you know, the, the long-suffering, uh, overly polite Canadians. I had Noah Fleming on the on the podcast last year, and I, it, we, I think we got started late or something, and I apologized for something, and he says, hey, I'm the Canadian. I'm going to be doing the apologizing here. <laughs> so, so how can uh, listeners best learn more about you and your book? Yeah, so salesforlife.com. Definitely go to salesforlife.com slash blog yes. and register for our blog. We we are the largest publisher of social selling best practices in the world. So please take advantage of that blog. You can get the book on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. It is getsocialselling.com and it allows you to buy from whatever source you'd like to buy from. And connect with me on LinkedIn. Okay, super. We've already got a note here to make sure that we include a link to your blog. It's really fantastic, and you guys do such a great job. Just a final quote from the last page of the book. Finally, the biggest revelation hit us in 2013 when we recognized that sales professionals were a portion of the buyer interaction and can only succeed when partnered with marketing. Over the last three years, we've dedicated more man hours to improving sales and marketing integration than any other element of the social selling mastery program. I truly do believe that social selling is simply the byproduct of effective sales and marketing integration. I also believe that solving this challenge will become the most important topic for companies over the next five years. The name of the book is Social Selling Mastery, Scaling Up Your Sales and Marketing Machine for the Digital Buyer. The author is Jamie Shanks. Jamie, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much for the invite. And that closes the book on episode 111 of the Marketing Book Podcast. Links to everything linkable in the interview you just listened to are at marketingbookpodcast.com. That's also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. Let's meet in person. If you're in the Raleigh, North Carolina area, I'll be speaking to the Triangle Marketing Club on February 28th next week about the seven concepts from 100 marketing and sales books every marketer needs to know. I'd be delighted to speak to your group, too. All I need is a bus ticket, a bar tab, and a hotel room. To contact me, just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and leave a message or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name, again, is Douglas Burdett, or send me a tweet at my Twitter handle, marketingbook. I look forward to hearing from you. And please join us next time as we welcome CNN's Frank Sesno to the show to talk about his new book, Ask More, The Power of Questions to Open Doors, Uncover Solutions, and Spark Change. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.